Welcome into the Locked On Knicks podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Shaw, going solo initially on this episode to talk about Sharif Cooper, why he will ultimately be the pick for the New York Knicks when they trade up in the NBA draft. And then we finish up our last two segments with an expert on the Phoenix Suns and everything going on in the NBA Finals. It's Gerald Bourget of Fansided and The Step Back. He also does a podcast for Valley of the Suns. He is my former editor. He has been covering this Phoenix team for six years now. So we get into everything Game 6 right now on Locked on Knicks. You are Locked on Knicks, your daily New York Knicks podcast. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. And I think we see Willis coming out. There he comes right now. You are locked on Knicks, and today's episode is brought to you by our NBA Draft Show, NBA Draft Goat, Chad Ford, locked on NBA Draft host Rafael Barlow. And Locked On NBA host John Corrales will be live this year covering the NBA Draft. It's Locked On NBA Draft 2021, brought to you by Built Bar. Get local expert analysis on each pick. Follow Locked On NBA on YouTube today and watch our live coverage on July 29th at 7 p.m. ET. I am Gavin Shaw, a resumed play-by-play broadcaster. Alex is on vacation this week. I know we, we, we've had... We've had a little bit of trouble getting together the last few weeks. First, uh, first he was away, then I was away, now he's away again. But I promise uh, towards the end of the month, we will have a lot of episodes with us, plus a lot of fun guests. Um, but for this week, it's going to mostly be me and a, a lot of fun guests. Coming up today, once again, Gerald Bourget um, at the start of the second segment uh, to talk NBA Finals. But first, I wanted to get into a draft rumor. That uh, came out the other day, or let, let's just call it a report. Uh, Matt Moore, who uh, writes for a number of sites, including the Action Network, and hosts the Locked On Nuggets podcast, in addition to co-hosting one of our Locked On NBA shows. So he's he's family, and he had a report breaking down a lot of things he's hearing about the NBA draft and NBA free agency. And this nugget, because it's relevant to all of us, stood out to me. He said, I asked five sources for a team in the first round most likely to move up, and they all said the Knicks. The Knicks have picks 19 and 21, along with two second rounders and an extra top 10 protected pick in 2023 from Dallas. Multiple sources said there's a player in the low teens that they have targeted, but no one's quite sure who it is. So friend of the show, Jonathan Macri, did an excellent breakdown of this, and he came to the conclusion that Davion Mitchell was the probable target for New York. I could I could certainly see that being a possibility. I think. Given everything we've learned about Tibbs and this Leon Rose front office, it, it feels as if it's a near certainty that they will trade up. And when they do try to trade up, a lot of people's inclination is that they're going to go for someone with a lot of experience, who's who's able to contribute to winning right away. I mean, you look at the OB Toppin pick last year, and that that was a strong initial data point that that is the priority for this organization. Everything they've been telling us is that they don't want to take a step back next year and that they want to 
get a rookie who can come in and play rotation minutes. And if they don't get that guy, they, they just don't really see a lot of utility in having those first round picks because their goal is to win with expediency. So it, it makes sense that people would conclude that they were going to go for a more experienced player. But I would make the argument that Sharif Cooper fits the win now bill. In, in a very finite college career at Auburn, because he was ineligible due to NCAA chicanery uh, for the first 11 games of the year. So he only played 12 games, but he averaged 20 and 8 in those tw- uh, 12 games. The only other freshman to ever put up those numbers is Trey Young. And to me, Cooper is essentially Young without the deep shooting. Now, now granted, as a prospect, Young's three-pointer is essentially what defined his game, right? And and even, even in the NBA, it, it's become a little bit more of a peripheral skill for him. But the fact that teams, to some extent, have to respect him 30 feet and out is sort of his defining quality. So you might be saying like, all right, that's like saying um, he, he's like LeBron James without the size. Well, then then he's just sort of Eric Bledsoe. And, and that's not that useful. But I would argue that Young's most important skill is his ability to consistently win off the dribble and then to be an all-world passer. Right. And, and, and to complement that with, with a great layup package and, and a great floater game. And to me, that's the whole appeal of Cooper. It, it's it's that even if you're not guarding him 25 feet and out and he, he was and, and you're not going to early in his NBA career, he was something like a 23 percent three point shooter at Auburn. It, it was it was largely really, really bad. I think he still has the ability to get all the way to the rim and the brilliance of his game is he's such a dynamic passer and he's so quick and, and such a talented dribbler and, and, and someone who's, who's so multifaceted around the basket. There's just a lot of ways he can kill you, even if he's not draining from deep. And if, if you're going to give him room to build up momentum, it, it's almost like a miniaturized, and I mean miniaturized, because he's probably six feet tall, a uh, version of Giannis where he can just find his way around a basketball court and navigate his way through traffic. And, and to me, the, the maybe even the grander part of his appeal is that passing ability because the, the Knicks have desperately struggled for years to maximize Mitchell Robinson because they have not had talented passers across the roster. And in particular, they have not really had talented lot passers. I, I think Cooper is spectacular in that capacity. I would argue um, right alongside someone like Cade Cunningham, and I, there, there are a couple other people in this category. I, I would argue he's the single best lob passer in this draft. And that's a skill that derives from his ability to pass off of a live dribble. Because the, the lob is really, I mean, it, it's obviously about having athletic outlets, but it's, it's really about being improvisational and being able, being spontaneous and, and in turn catching a defense off its feet and out of position. And Cooper, you, you go through his highlights, you go through his game tape, he does that again and again and again. And if you're the Knicks, you have Mitchell Robinson, you have Obi Toppin, you have even even someone like R.J. Barrett. That's a quality you want in your lead guard. And I, I look at all those qualities and I say, well, why, why did the Knicks so desperately need those? Well, I can, I can tell you. Um, Julius Randle, 20th in the NBA in assists per game last year. Behind him, Alfred Payton, 70th, not going to be back next year. R.J. Barrett, 74th. The Knicks simply did not have enough creation. It's not something that killed them in the regular season, especially when Randall was going through stretches of just absurd triple-double-a-night basketball. It is something that destroyed them come playoff time. And it allowed the Atlanta Hawks to load up on Randall and say, all right, 
anyone else try and make something happen. Derrick Rose did. No one else did. So the Knicks desperately need another guard who can do that. Obviously, we all have our hopes for Emmanuel quickly, but he is not the natural passer that Cooper is. The other quality that Cooper possesses that we've, we've mentioned a couple of times here is that ability to get to the rim. So let's let's look at the Knicks. And and interestingly, I started off by going through the playoff stats, and I was and my my thought process was I'm going to prove that the Knicks need someone who can get to the rim and with with, with consistency because they didn't really do that. And I was kind of pleasantly surprised to find the Knicks were actually amongst playoff teams relatively high up in terms of guys who took at least five shots per game within five feet of the basket. Derrick Rose hit that mark. R.J. Barrett hit that mark. Julius Randle hit that mark. And then I circled back to the regular season, and I said, all right, was that was that really something that was true all year long? And when they got there, were they getting high-quality attempts? The answer were, was no and no. RJ was 27th in the NBA at shot attempts within five feet. That's a great number for such a young player and a good indication of, of what kind of player he can be down the road. The downside with RJ is he was pretty poor at finishing once he got there, even though he improved massively in that capacity from his rookie year, or, or at least appeared to throughout the season. But he was he had the fourth lowest shooting percentage within five feet of the basket of the players in the top 50 in shot attempts within five feet of the basket at only 53%. Going through the rest of the top 100, Mitchell Robinson was 40th. He shot 66.5% around the rim coming off a season, um, his second year in the NBA, that 19-20 year, where he was one of the best in NBA history around the basket. For Mitch, I think that's a number that will only get better with a point guard like Sharif Cooper. The only other guy in the top 100 was Julius Randle. He was at 58.1%, which is sort of average for for the players in the top 100 in terms of efficiency around the basket. But Julius was right around 85th. So he was barely in the top 100 in shot attempts around the rim. I say all this to say Sharif Cooper best fits the needs for the Knicks offensively. And and look, there are reasons he's going to be available in the top 20. We already mentioned it. He can't really shoot yet. I'm I'm buying a shot long-term because he was taking a high degree of difficulty threes, a lot of them off the dribble. I don't like how his form looks, but at the same time, I, I think there are pretty easy and obvious mechanical corrections to make with him that can allow his shot to be a lot better right away. And the fact that he was so confident and he's such an athlete, I, I he just strikes me as someone who will eventually be a very good shooter. Who, who knows if that will actually end up coming to fruition. The bigger concern is defensively, he looks like a sieve. And if you're really betting on Emmanuel quickly, you're saying, all right, is that really going to be your backcourt of the future? I'm not necessarily saying that. I think the argument for it being feasible would be that if they're starting, it means they're so, so good offensively that you can sort of live with whatever happens on defense, sort of like Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum in Portland, and you're intentionally insulating your roster around them by having someone like Mitchell Robinson and paying him a premium to be one of the best cleaner-uppers in the entirety of the NBA. The more realistic scenario, I think, would be that the Knicks get a bigger point guard, whether it's in the draft this year or it's a stopgap like Kyle Lowry, and one of Cooper or quickly comes off the bench for you. And you can survive in the NBA that way. We've seen it with, look, obviously Chris Paul's in a different category because he is one of the best small guard defenders of all time. But Phoenix is thriving with him and campaign in their backcourt. You can you can win with small backcourts if you insulate it with size at other spots. We saw that with Atlanta as well this year. Concluding point, I think Sharif Cooper has the most upside of any of the potential candidates the Knicks could get in a trade-up scenario. And I think he's the best fit. All right, let's wrap that up. Take a break and talk to our guy, Gerald Bourget. So for our first ad break, we're going to talk about one of our all-time favorites, Rock Auto. 
This episode is brought to you by Rock Auto. With the ever-increasing numbers of makes and models, it's now impossible for your local chain auto parts store to stock all the parts you need. Why endure often pointless or seemingly intimidating questions? Is your Odyssey an LX or an EX? I don't know, man. And wait while the person buying the computer orders the parts on their computer, choosing the only brand their warehouse happens to carry. You have computers with access to rockauto.com at home and in your pocket. So why choose to spend 30%, 50%, even 100% more for the same parts from a chain store or a car dealership? The great part about Rock Auto is that it's a family business, and they've been serving do-it-yourselfers, like yourself, for over 20 years. Rock Auto prices are reliably low for every customer, so just go explore their easy-to-use website today to find the solution to your auto part needs. Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck, Right, locked on in their How Did You Hear About Us box so they know we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. RockAuto.com. All right, as promised, it is the great Gerald Bourget, my former editor and currently the NBA editor and lead Suns writer for both the Step Back and Fan Sided, also hosts a podcast at our old site, Valley of the Suns. Gerald, how's it going, man? How, how did that podcast come about? I was just—I've seen it on Twitter a couple of times, but you—you you, you really you circled back. You went away from Valley of the Suns for a while. That—that's where where we first met, uh, like six or seven years ago now, covering a team that was not very good, and uh, and now you're you're all the way back there. Yeah, it, it's kind of a funny story. They—I uh, left Valley of the Suns to focus on Hoops Habit full time because I was also writing for them. They put me in charge of Hoops Habit. And then they brought me on to the main fan-sided site, and uh, I started doing a podcast in my spare time. And uh, my my employers told me I had to do the podcast for them because of my the contract that I signed with them. It was in my contract. I had no idea. Um, so they actually were starting up a podcast network. So I got to do a Suns podcast, and it, we just streamlined it through Valley of the Suns. So it kind of all came for full circle there, getting to do a podcast uh, on our old site where we used to write for. There you go. Uh, full full circle. Pretty surreal. Um, speaking of surreal, I, I asked you a little bit before the show, but I, I, I wanted to get it on air. Um, what what has this whole experience been like for you? Because I mean, I was I was getting it into a little bit in in the tease for the pod, but just kind of an insane run for this Suns team. Obviously, horrific for such a long time. And when I was in college and and I was writing for you, it was. It was particularly hopeless after that 13-14 season where it just felt like they were in this constant morass of, of blown picks and like slightly hopeful moments here and there, but it, it just felt like a never-ending cycle of doom. And and the weird thing is that obviously this year people expect them to be good, but in some ways it was almost like it wasn't like a progressive build. It was like bad, 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 bad. Oh, wait, they might be the best team in the NBA this season. <laughs> and and for you, like you've been going to all these games now for years and years and years. And I've just got to imagine because I remember when I was covering practices there that there just weren't a lot. Like there were days where it was literally me and like maybe one other person. And now I like I'm just curious, like even less so about the basketball, like the media scene, like it just has to have gone from zero to a hundred essentially. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, it's been a surreal experience, like just covering this team. Obviously I've only been on the beat. This is my sixth year. So not super long, but long enough to know and have experienced some of the darkest days in the franchise's history. Like I I can't undersell how bad some of the years were like 
opening night to start their 50th anniversary season and they lose by 49 to the Blazers and then <laughs> Eric Bledsoe wants out and then Earl Watson gets fired and it's like one bad thing after the other and it's like honestly being like with a toxic ex covering this team for a while where like you just get used to poor treatment and you don't know that you deserve better and then this season is the the new person that comes along and treats you right and like you almost are suspicious of it because you're not used to <laughs> having good things like it's been insane watching this team insanely fun um really cool to see Devin Booker finally playing with a a really good team because he's been toiling away for G League caliber rosters for too long and so now that he finally has a really good team we're seeing what he can do what the Suns can do obviously it's looking a little grim at the moment down 3-2 in the finals but the fact that they're even in the finals in this series where they are right now is truly incredible after what the last few seasons have looked like. So starting with the bubble last year, all the way up to this point, it's just been an amazing ride. And one of the, you know, 2020 was a dark time. This year was rough at the beginning as well. Um, One of the few bright spots has been being able to cover this team. And it's been awesome to watch. What would you say over the course of this playoff run, the, the single loudest moment has been in the arena formerly known <laughs> as the stick. There there are a few that come to mind. The Tory Craig alley oop at home. Um, I think it was against the Lakers in that game. That nearly took the roof off because the Suns were just making a run and pulverizing them. And that was huge. Um the Valley Oop though, I don't think anything has topped that because that was just I mean that's an end of game moment that was the significance of that dunk and that play, I don't think can be understated or overstated. And like, I mean, everyone saw the viral clip of like Stephen A. Smith and Michael Wilbon, just speechless <laughs> in front of this roaring crowd. Like that's an all time moment. I don't know if I've ever heard the building that loud. Um, since I started covering the team, it was just a surreal moment where all of us on media row were just kind of like frozen we had no idea how to react because we didn't know if the basket counted we didn't know from my angle i couldn't even had seen if it had gone in or what had happened so it was like it was a surreal moment loudest i've ever heard that building yeah i think i think maybe 20 years ago this would have been a sack religious question but i think <laughs> given the current climate i i can ask this are, are you do you consider yourself or or maybe before you started the covering the team did you consider yourself a suns fan so I actually, growing up in Albuquerque, I was a Suns fan um, during my younger days, like watching Steve Nash and um, Amari Stoudemire, Sean Marion. They were just a fun team. And I I lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So they were kind of the closest NBA team to where I lived. Um, and then I went to college and like it was Steve Nash's final years. And I was going into journalism and, you know, we're, we're taught in journalism school to be objective and all of that. So I kind of distanced myself from my son's fandom at that time. And it, it kind of made sense because the sons were going to be terrible. Uh, those last couple of years, poor Steve Nash had to waste away here and then he left and it got even worse. Um, but I mean, I objectively like it's fun covering a winning team. So you want to see the team that you're covering go far so you can continue covering them. And like this experience, like I said, has been the highlight of my journalism career so far. So it's been really fun to see the city come alive because I've been here for the last 11 years. I know that this is a Suns town, but it's been a long time since it's felt like it. 
So it really is cool to see all of these long suffering fans like really enjoying this moment, see the city come alive and see a team, especially some of these younger guys who have been through some really rough years, um, finally getting a chance to shine on, on this big stage. Yeah, I was I was asking that because like in a moment like the value, like I also do on, on top of this podcast, I do play by play. And my dad's asked me so many times if you if, like if you're recalling like game seven of the NBA finals and like the Knicks made or like lost at the buzzer like could you could you call that objectively and I've always like I think so but I'm not sure <laughs> and like I just imagine doing that value moment like there has to be like one dude on press row who's like giving like a fist pump and like cheering um <laughs> but it I I can't even like internally do you have to like contain yourself a little bit or you're just like oh cool all right, guys, let's take our second break and remind you today's episode is also brought to you by Bet Online. It's the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Baseball season is in full swing, and you can track all the action at Bet Online. Get all the latest news, odds, and info for all your sporting needs, including MLB, NBA, NHL, and all your UFC slash MMA action. Before the next pitch, head over to Bet Online on your laptop or mobile device and check out all the great sporting news. Sign up bonuses and contest information. So don't sit on the sidelines anymore. This is your chance to get into the game as teams prep for their runs to the playoffs. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit if you use our promo code locked on. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. I mean, for me, I kind of don't, I'm, I've gotten used to not reacting on Media Row because yeah. I don't really have a rooting interest. Like, obviously, I'm, like I said, I want to see this yeah, the team that I'm covering go far. <laughs> Um, but you know, I think with play by play, you get a little bit more freedom on that because you want to be excited. And I feel like there's nothing wrong with being excited about good basketball. And that was an amazing basketball moment, um, regardless of who you were rooting for, just like, you know, the Giannis block and the Giannis alley-oop the last two games were amazing basketball moments. Um, you know, it's one of those things where I don't really have to work too hard to remove my fandom, but it, it is fun seeing some of the people on media row, like, reacting to plays or like positively or negatively it's 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 fun to see people invested and i i don't i certainly don't judge anybody for being invested at this point in the season either all right let, let's swing around to some actual basketball talk um i guess bottom line sum up everything question what do you think the suns have left in the tank because i, I think this could flip one of two ways there are people a lot of people who maybe maybe rightfully are already coronating Milwaukee and mm-hmm. I understand to some extent why that's happening because just from a I, I was saying after game one like you know I really thought that they were just going to bully Phoenix physically and that didn't happen the first two games I think mostly because DeAndre Ayton was just incredible on both ends on the glass but that's as this series has gone on as Milwaukee's kind of gotten their sea legs that's sort of shifted and it I, I think the reason people feel that this feels sort of inevitable. I'll give three reasons. It was that Devin Booker was so incredible the last two games, and both times it just wasn't quite enough. It's that Chris mm-hmm. Paul does not quite look like himself. And it is that that physical advantage that even even if you're of the mind that they're not going to have another game where all three of their stars go off like that, they, they, just, they have a little something on the Suns, and the Suns just from a depth perspective and, and just a sheer strength perspective might not be able to match that. The, the other side of the argument is that Phoenix played, obviously, early on exceptionally well in that game. And then in the fourth quarter, seemed to have really found something. And, and to me, they, they just they basically live and die by Chris Paul because they've been so, so much better, overwhelmingly so, when Devin Booker is on the court. And they've absolutely struggled when he's been off the court. And, that, and, and the reason that's flip has been all right all year is because Chris has been incredible. And now when he's not. 
they can't compete with a team like Milwaukee. Very long-winded way of asking you, Gerald. Um, do you think this? Do you think this team has enough left in the tank to win two more games? You know, it's funny because with the extra days in between games, I've like waffled on this the last twenty-four hours because after Game Five, it felt that was a gut punch. Like it, it felt like Milwaukee and six was the only possible outcome after that. Um, because that was a second straight game where th- that was a winnable game. It was within their grasp and they just let it slip through their fingers and credit the bucks because the bucks beat them in both games. It's not like, you know, the Suns choked away a game or anything, but like those were winnable games. The Suns came up short. Those are gut punches, especially on this stage. Um, Especially, you know, they've only lost three times in a row all season long. But I keep just coming back to this is like they never lost four times in a row. And the last time they lost three times in a row, they dropped to eight and eight. And it was their wake up call for the rest of the season. They finished 43 and 13 after that. They look like a completely different team. They worked out some of the kinks there with Chris Paul and Devin Booker. Um, I think they had the number one offense and the number seven defense in the league from that point onward, the best record in the league from that point. Um, It just completely changed their season. So if you're a Suns fan, you're hoping that this was their, their call to arms moment. Basically Um, it would be a real shame if they won the first two games of the series. And then the first time they lost four straight was right after that in the finals, that would be brutal. And it would be kind of, fitting honestly for the way that this Suns franchise and and Chris Paul's playoff career have been kind of cursed but it would also be really cool to see them win two straight and overcome some of those old demons and finally win a title for both of them Um, I I think in game six it's going to be a dogfight I do think the Suns are not down and out and it wouldn't surprise me if they won game six and then won game seven at home because that building's just going to be rocking but um, you know, I, I initially thought the Bucks were going to win game six. I would be very happy if I'm proven wrong on that and get to cover a game seven. Cause that would be, that's the one thing I haven't covered yet yeah. <laughs> during this playoff run. So that would be awesome selfishly, but I really do think the Suns have a fighting chance in this game. As long as they do, I think in the first two games, they really did let the crowd noise get to them a little bit because this was their first truly loud hostile road environment that they had to play in like the lakers weren't letting in full capacity crowds the nuggets i mean their crowd they were they're all about the broncos there anyway and they kind of knew that series was over Dude, by game once three once and four guys showed up it was it was all yeah, over. <laughs> it was a wrap and then the clippers like you know it's a it's a clippers game it's not going to get that loud anyway <laughs> but like the bucks have a very loud fan base i think the suns were a little thrown off by that i think they dropped a variable winnable game in game four I think they have a chance to win on the road. They had the the NBA's best road record this season. And, um, you know, I, I think Monty's got to ride Devin Booker harder than he did even in the last few games. Because if you look at their net rating, it's they're a 6.3 with him on the court in 145 minutes in the series. And in the other, I think, 45 minutes or whatever it is that he's been off, it's a negative 38. Jesus. Like, that's insane. And he only sat for six minutes in, in game uh, five, and those six minutes totally decided the game. So it's going to be tough. Their, their starters are going to have to log heavy minutes, and they're going to have to play really well because the Bucks do have that size and that strength advantage like you were talking about. But I'm not counting them out just yet. They've, they've responded to adversity every time this season, and I, I wouldn't count them out for game six. You, you, you mentioned it, but 
Chris Paul's playoff career, if they lose game six, it feels sort of like the Red Wedding in Game of Thrones. It's just like, like rip your guts out in front of you type of stuff. Like he's pushed so hard to get to this point. That Denver series to me felt like a bit of a coronation where he was just absolutely tearing them apart in the pick and roll, doing whatever he wanted. One, one of the more efficient closeout games in NBA history. Then lit the Clippers on fire in game six um, to win that series. And, and then comes around... And it's interesting because I'm going through his box scores, an exceptional game one, right? 32 and 9, 12 for 19 from the field, 4 of 7 from 3. Could could not get better. Game two, uh, everything you needed out of him, he did 23-8. Again, 50% from the field, 3 of 5 from 3. And then the last three games, like four was an exception, but 3 and 5 look good on paper. And at the same time, Gerald, I, I would assume you feel the same way as me. You watch these games, and I actually feel the exact same way around DeAndre Ayton, where he had a 20 and 10. You're, you look and you're kind of like, really? And it just mm-hmm. didn't feel that way. With Chris, you, you can you can certainly say that fourth quarter, he came to life, but it, it really felt like this in game four. And then I it, it fluctuated in game five, but maybe it's, it, I assume it's probably the ligaments in his hand, but it doesn't feel like his handle is totally there. And it feels like the degree of difficulty on the shots he, he's getting are just turned up to a 10. And because he's an all-time shot maker, he can still hit enough of them to survive. But I, I just contrast it with that Denver series. And granted, you, you have much better defenders on Milwaukee. But it doesn't feel to me like he's just he's getting the same separation he was getting. Would you agree with that assessment? And do you have any hope for Game 6 uh, in that capacity? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do. And I think people are looking at the overall numbers, the 21 and 11, and he shot 9 of 15 in, in Game 5 and, and thinking he had a good game. And really, he was kind of... Um, mediocre or more of a non-factor through the first three quarters. Um, and, and it just looked like, especially in that second quarter when it was him out there and Devin Booker on the bench and they gave up that 16 point lead just in the blink of an eye, there were a couple of shots that it looked like he passed up like mid range looks, even a three point look um, that was, that were critical because, you know, the Suns were getting decent, looks in that in that period but they just weren't making any of them and that was when it was time for Chris Paul to kind of take over hit a couple mid-range jumpers do what he does in creating that separation and he just couldn't and I think Drew Holiday deserves a lot of credit for the job that he's done on him in this series because ever since game two when he got switched on to Chris Paul like he's he's made an impact on this series with his defense and with hounding Chris Paul up the floor um, you know, the Suns are having to work just to get it across half court half the time. They're starting their offense late. They're getting them out of their sets and that, that takes its toll. And I, I do think though, I agree with you. I don't think Chris Paul looks a hundred percent. Um, he's denied that anything's wrong. He's, you know, we, he's been asked directly about the ligaments that he mentioned at the end of the conference finals. He said, he's fine. Monty has said he's fine. You know, they're probably downplaying it, but in any case, he's healthy enough to be out there. He's healthy enough to make an impact like he did in games one and two, like he did at the end of game five. So it's one of those things where you're hoping that his his heart and his determination is enough to kind of overweigh whatever physical ailments he's going through right now because they need him. And, and the fourth quarter showed that like when the ball started moving again a little bit, when he started knocking down shots because they kind of had to that's when they clawed their way back into the game. So you're hoping that he has one or two more signature performances left because they're, they're on the brink. Like this, this is, 
this might be their last legitimate shot at a title for a while, both for Chris Paul's career and for the Suns for a little bit, even with all the young players they have. Like this has been a magical season. So to let it slip away like this would be devastating. So you're hoping that he has a vintage performance in game six to kind of bounce back from the last two, um, even if the overall numbers in game five looked looked okay. All right, we can we can wrap up on this, but just as much as Chris, I think DeAndre Ayton's play is the key to the Suns winning these next two games. Like he he just can't be anything short of his best self because to me, more, more than more than anything, the guards did. And the guards were incredible. What Ayton did defensively in Game One and Two, and rolling to the basket in Game One and Two, were winning the Suns this series and made it look like. In my mind, I, I just thought the Bucks were not going to be able to find an answer for that because Chris and, and Dev were, were just torturing Brooke Lopez in the pick and roll. And then you said you take Lopez out and all of a sudden, like, there's just nothing stopping DeAndre Aiden around the rim. And I can't really tell if it's just wearing him down. And it would make a lot of sense that this is wearing him down. Guarding Giannis for 40 plus minutes a night is seems like hell on earth. But <laughs> yeah. It just feels offensively like he doesn't quite have the same pop rolling to the rim. And there there are plays where like the whole like it's been much reported on in sun circles all year, like how much and now nationally, like how much Chris Paul has gotten on him over the year, how much Devin Booker has gotten on over the year. And that the entire key to his success in the NBA was basically like going to use a cliche, 110 percent all the time and, and playing with that extra like little bit of force and it just, it feels like that slipped ever so slightly. Like I remember, I think it was in the second quarter where like he caught it for what should have been a layup and he just, he didn't go up quickly enough and he got, he ended up getting triple teamed and losing it. And it felt like a couple of times, I don't know if it was indecisiveness or lack of physicality, but what have you seen from Aiton? And I, I'll just ask the same question I asked about Chris. Does, does he have that extra gear to still get to? And it's not even like a lot of times people with sports talk this and like, question his manhood and be like, Oh God, like he, he has to bring it. Like, <laughs> no, he, he's been so incredible throughout these playoffs beyond the sun's wildest dreams. And and the biggest lesson from this whole postseason is that it's extraordinarily hard to be a center in the NBA and, and play more than 22 minutes a game and, and, and make a credible two way impact. And, and Aiden has done that. He's, he's answered every single doubter in, in, in these playoffs. And yet the sun's need a little more for him and him if they're going to win the series. Yeah, I mean, you. It it feels like he's kind of faded as the series has gone on, and not just because of you know in in like games two and three, I think he had foul trouble, especially in three, and that was kind of the one that really hurt them. Um, but yeah, I mean, like game four, that was a critical winnable game, and he had like he had seventeen boards, but he only had six points. He shot three of nine, like. You, you need your seven footer to do better than that. I think in game two, he shot four of 10 and it didn't matter because the Suns hit uh, like 23s in that game. But yeah, you're right. In game five, I looked at the you know box score at the end of the game and was kind of surprised to see that he had 20 and 10 because it did not feel like he was very impactful. Like, you know, he's, he's finishing up around the rim still. He shot seven for 12, but it wasn't an impactful DeAndre Ayton game. And he hasn't really had many of those in this series, especially not since the first two games. He's kind of faded a little bit and that's understandable. Like Giannis is a damn good player. He's really hard to match up with, but even his defense hasn't made as much of an impact as I was expecting. Um, and, and I think, 
like in game five, there were a couple of passes that went right to him and he kind of bobbled them and didn't go up strong with them or lost them. He only had two turnovers in the game, but you know, when, when you're getting passes right in the paint and need to go up with it and finish, especially in a game where you wind up losing by four points, every single one of those matters. Um, so it's been unfortunate because like you were saying, he has been a huge X factor for the Suns throughout this playoff run. In the first round, he was going up against Anthony Davis and Andre Drummond he, and do, and holding his own. In the second round, he limited the league MVP, Nikola Jokic, as, as best as you can hope for. Um, the conference finals even like we saw what the Clippers small ball lineups were able to do to Rudy Gobert the defensive player of the year that didn't happen to DeAndre Ayton or at least not to the same extent he was able to stay on the floor and make an impact still even against those small ball lineups so every step of the way he's been an x-factor and going into game six they need him to have a game where he just plays about you know up to par compared to a guy like Giannis which is a tough ask but you know, that's what he's been kind of rising to the occasion throughout this playoff run. They need him to do it again on this huge stage and, and kind of make up for a couple of games that were um, below the effort and below the performance level that we've seen throughout this postseason run. All right. I, th- I think you told me, but you said official prediction is you, you think the Bucks finish it off in six? I, I think that was my initial reaction. I think for the sake of... Uh, for the sake of entertainment, I'm going to say Suns win game six and then come home and win game seven in another tight one. You know what, man? I really, really hope you're right. Once again, that was <laughs> Gerald Borgay. You can follow him on Twitter, Gerald, last name, B-O-U-R-G-U-E-T. He is the NBA editor and lead Suns writer for both the Step Back and Fan Sided, one of the definitive voices covering this Suns team. So must, must follow for game six and seven. And going forward, I've long argued that there should be some solidarity between Knicks and Suns fans. A lot of a lot of similar struggles over the last 50 years. But, Gerald, thanks so much, man. Um, I, I'll be sure to have you back on if the Suns can't pull that off. Absolutely, Gavin. Thanks for having me.